Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Previously on There Goes the Neighborhood. Uh, can I get a latte? Latte? Sure. You're going to sit down with this here and take it to go. Uh, to go. You know what's interesting? The other day I was walking in my neighborhood and I saw a black elderly gentleman that I hadn't seen in a couple months and he literally, his eyes flew open and he said, You're still here! And I went, yeah, and you're still here. Things have changed, haven't they? And we were like, yeah, black folks are disappearing. I'm not ready to sell. I am ready to sell yet, and I need them to leave me alone. Flyers, you know, stuffed in the mailbox. As soon as I see we buy houses, I throw it right in the garbage. Real estate, that's like the only way out of poverty to to reach real wealth. When he bought it, there was still one or two tenants living in the building. Our agreement on the lease was that I will get it completely vacant, and that's how I got it. I live in Bed-Stuy. I moved there four years ago with, like, lots of other white people. (laughs) And, um... As a white person, I don't know what my white privilege is. You know, I, that's that's part of it, right? It's ignorance. It's about not knowing the benefits that I have because I'm white. And, 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 and this neighborhood, I was in there 72 and a half years, and I love the neighborhood, the people, and the stink of it. I love it all, and I'm not going nowhere. You can't go anywhere. Well, I ain't going nowhere. I'm not going nowhere. Gentrification is obviously a very um, hot potato type of word. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. I'm Kai Wright. I'm an editor at The Nation magazine. And for the past eight weeks, my WNYC colleagues and I have been noodling a wide range of questions that gentrification raises. Now, as we bring this podcast to a close, we return to the one fundamental question that got us started. The one so many New Yorkers are asking. Is there still a place for me here? Can I afford to make a life in this town? And even if I can afford it, is there a community for me? Later in this episode, we'll update you on Mayor Bill de Blasio's response to this question, because just last week, it all became official. All items on today's general order calendar were adopted by a vote of 46 in the affirmative, zero negative and zero abstentions. His affordable housing plan, which depends on rezoning several neighborhoods and is arguably the most ambitious effort in the nation, is now set to begin in East New York. And in many ways, that makes this a hopeful moment, a time when the city's leadership is finally stepping up to help people in East New York who feel like they have been waging a solitary battle on behalf of their neighborhood for decades. There is a history of modern New York that credits the city's revival to the drop in crime that began under Mayor David Dinkins, accelerated under Rudy Giuliani, and kept dropping under Michael Bloomberg. Then there is reality. Those top-down changes were definitely important, but they were boosted and often preceded by community groups who took action to save their city, and by ordinary people who stood up to drug dealers, bad landlords, and greedy financiers. Reverend David Binky was one of them. He became the pastor of St. Peter's Lutheran Church in the Cypress Hill section of East New York in 1975. Binky tells us the story of a terrible crime in Highland Park. And afterward, an official response that was so appalling, he felt like he and his neighbors had to act. Highland Park is the neighborhood's northern border with Queens. I would go jogging there every day. 
around the reservoir. It's a, it's a famous spot, and it's about a mile around the reservoir. This particular day, I'm starting to do my jog, and all of a sudden, a, uh, a man comes toward me, but he's not jogging. He's running. He's really running. And I said, hold up, man. I said, you, you really going to sprint the whole thing? He said, I just saw a body laying in the ditch alongside the reservoir. He said, I'm getting out of here. I said, I'll go with you. And when we got to the parking lot, there was a guy standing by a trash receptacle. And he was looking very uh, unhappy and very uh, frightened. And he said, I've just found a head in here. And I asked the guy who was with me, I said, was there a head on the body that you found? And he said, no. The three men immediately ran out of the park. Mickey says he called the police and then went home. But the more he thought about the incident, the angrier he got. Because most of my kids in my church were up in that park all the time, and they were being robbed or dealt harshly with, we'll say. He started talking to his fellow members of a group called East Brooklyn Churches. Like him, they were fed up with the violence in Highland Park. They decided to agitate for change with their local officials, and two months later, they had a meeting with their precinct commander and the commissioner of the Parks Department in Queens. Binky saw it as a sign of progress, until the meeting started. They said right at the top, before we even go anywhere with this meeting, we need to tell you that our belief is this is the worst park in New York City. But more than that, we believe this is the worst park in North America. Precinct commanders said, we're not going into that park at the current time unless it's with a SWAT team. Pastor Mickey says he and his fellow activists did not accept that answer. They kept pressing the police for regular patrols and for the arrests of people involved in drug sales, prostitution, and pit bull fights. They also asked the Parks Department for basic improvements like restrooms, better lighting, and guardrails along the roads so drivers by the hundreds couldn't just pull off and abandon their cars. Cypress Hills in East New York have changed a lot since those days because of residents like Binky and other community organizers who are still fighting to make the neighborhood a vital, dynamic, safe place where people of all incomes can live. The area's recent rezoning included $13 million for local parks. A lot of that will go toward new playgrounds and pathways for Highland Park, which today Binky describes as a gym. We'll go back to the neighborhood later in this episode, both to talk about the mayor's plan and to look closely at what developers are already doing in that housing market, including one of the city's most infamous developers. But first, we turn to Manhattan, of all places, for a hopeful idea about housing. Because throughout this podcast, all of us working on it have been asking another question. Isn't there a bigger idea than zoning? I mean, sure, let's try it, but what are the -the pie-in-the-sky radical solutions out there? Isn't there something that's just unthinkably big, something so far out there it's a political non-starter, but that might actually work if given a shot? Well, by now it's clear we like history around here. So we looked back, and sure enough, we found just such an idea. Turns out, long before Bernie Sanders fixed his gaze on Denmark, another rabble-rousing politician shook up the political landscape by looking across the pond for solutions. We ask you to listen to a talk on the slum clearance amendment and the proposed new constitution for the state of New York by the Honorable Mayor Fiorella H. LaGuardia. Mayor LaGuardia. LaGuardia, the liberal lion of New York City. When he took office in 1934, after years in Congress, he faced a similar situation as de Blasio. The city had long suffered a huge housing crisis. 
There weren't near enough affordable units for poor and working class New Yorkers, so they all crammed into fire trap tenements owned by profiteering slumlords. LaGuardia hated this fact, like it wronged him personally. Only this morning, a little after four o'clock, the telephone at my bedside rang, and the fire department reported a fire in the Tenement House District down on Thompson Street on the Lower West Side. I was so tired. I had had a hard day. I got home late after working all day. A fire down in the Tenement House District on the Lower West Side. It's mayor, I knew what that meant. The tenements were death traps that went up like kindling, not to mention spreading tuberculosis and all manner of social ills. But there was nowhere else for people to live. For decades, housing advocates, both liberal and conservative, worked the problem. The solutions all revolved around versions of philanthropy, projects in which do-gooder investors would accept small returns for the chance to do a social good. It never worked. But among those housing activists, there was a small, really vocal group who had another idea. They looked at Europe's efforts in the wake of World War I, and they saw lessons. They pushed one big idea aggressively. And LaGuardia took it up and ran with it. There are no homes where these people can find apartments within the rent that they can afford to pay. Therefore, it becomes necessary for the government to step in to provide either loans and grants or subsidies so that people may live in decent homes and pay the rent within their earning powers. This was unheard of. Until this point in American history, housing was an entirely private concern. It was an attack on the private enterprise model of working-class housing. This is Nicholas Bloom, an associate professor at the New York Institute of Technology, who has co-edited a gorgeous tome of essays called Affordable Housing in New York. It dissects this city's wrestling match with the cost of real estate over more than 100 years. LaGuardia said things like this. This was kind of a new municipal service. It's not socialism, right? They didn't talk that way. They said, look, we can't have a better, cleaner, healthier city unless essentially the government becomes, they said this, the primary landlord for poor people in the city. And thus, public housing. It began with money from the Public Works Administration during the Depression, and then a series of federal and state laws over the course of the 30s created the system of public housing we know today. Of course, that system gets a pretty bad rap, but Bloom says there's one place in the country where you can still go to see what public housing was supposed to be. So this is Harlem River Houses, and it opened for first occupancy in 1937, so it's almost 80 years old, and this was really the first of the housing projects that the housing authority built and designed, but it was... Technically, the first one was on the Lower East Side, but that was a remodeling project as opposed to something designed and built from scratch. Harlem River was built with PWA money, money that was meant to be spent freely to create jobs after the Depression. So the feds put no spending caps on it. Bloom toured us around Harlem River and pointed out a few things that echoed from Europe. First, the courtyard. We're surrounded by buildings, right, right, all four sides, right. and through the middle of them... That would have been a street. Would have been a street. Instead, now, there's a there's. So you like a use that space, you basically pull the space that would have been used for streets, right? And you turn that into common spaces, community spaces. That's really one of the big concepts of the superblock, 
of this time. They're really afraid of the car in the 1920s and 30s. So where are we going to put kids? Where can kids be? Where can older people be? They can be away from the street in a kind of protected environment. That also creates a sense of community, lets parents watch kids from their windows, brings in nature, and it connects to two other big design revolutions, light and height. If you know other NYCHA housing developments, you'll know that this one is, compared to almost all the other housing developments, relatively low-rise. It's four or five stories. And you can look up and you can yeah, see the full it. sky all that around. It's it. almost like you're in Central Park. So we're inside a courtyard, but you don't have a sense of the darkness, like of large buildings and shadows. Um, there is this kind of openness that also helps the trees and other plantings and things like that. In fact, the trees rise higher than the buildings. They do. They're old enough now. This means all kinds of stuff. So none of the infamous problems with broken elevators and dangerous shafts and all those movie scenes set in dark, spooky hallways of public housing. In fact, you can see that all the units have tons of windows. Even the stairwells are lined with them. So no excuse for NYPD to patrol them with guns drawn, no accidental shootings of unarmed residents like Akai Gurley. And inside the units, there were plaster walls and wood floors and brass fixtures, all the stuff that market-rate housing got. As for the tenants, the income cutoff was relatively high, meaning you had mixed incomes because, much like now, even skilled workers were in desperate search of quality, affordable housing. Of course, the complex was built for black residents only. This was the 30s. Legal residential segregation was in full effect. But Bloom says even that was sort of a radical advancement because it was nice housing for black people. That African Americans in Harlem were paying, let's say, twice as much for substandard housing as white people were paying for substandard housing in other parts of the city because they weren't able to basically move freely and rent. So Harlem River becomes a kind of model housing for the African American community. So what happened? What went wrong? Why haven't we spent the past 80 years creating high-quality, publicly subsidized housing for poor and working-class New Yorkers? Well, it was a bit too nice. When people learned about this in the public... There was an outcry because those who were in positions of power, who were not the housing people who wanted to do really high-quality housing for the city as a whole, they said, why are you spending so much money on housing for poorer people? Even as Harlem River Houses accepted its first tenants, Congress passed the 1937 law that financed public housing beyond the PWA. This time, they set limits on cost and capped incomes much lower. The very next projects New York City built, just a couple years later, were taller, with less light, and more tenants per floor. Pretty soon, Robert Moses was demolishing neighborhoods to build large complexes of monotonous towers, and all the stuff we now imagine when we think about public housing gradually emerged. LaGuardia himself is part of this change. He replaces the head of the housing authority with a guy named Alfred Reinstein, and and Reinstein was a developer. And Reinstein looked at these first public housing developments, as other people did, and he said, you know, people are lining up for these places, right? We don't have to make them as nice because they will accept. They will accept less. And so the experiment with quality, public, affordable housing ended. A great many other experiments followed, particularly with subsidies for middle-class apartment buyers and eventually for large for-profit developers. Many of them worked, some of them failed. But Harlem River stands as a testament to the LaGuardia-era vision of housing for the poor. Tenants will tell you it's worn around the edges. There's not nearly enough money in the budget to keep up with maintenance. Still, they like it. Kenny Banks moved here about seven years ago. Oh, I love Harlem River. My father used to live here. He would come get me to have breakfast at Charles. And I said, oh, I would love to live over there. 
It's only three people on the floor. It's four floors. We can keep it clean. We don't have a bunch of strangers. We know who lives there, who does not. So it's like, like a little private house. He pays $1,100 a month for a one-bedroom apartment and says that number keeps climbing on him. And so in my neighborhood in Bed-Stuy, um, the average rent for a one-bedroom now uh, is $1,900 a month. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I heard about Brooklyn. Everybody's talking in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is the toast of the town now. And I heard the rent is crazy. The rent is too damn high. So Mayor de Blasio's big idea is inclusionary zoning. We covered this back in episode four, but a quick reminder of how it's going to work. The city will rezone 15 neighborhoods, places where land is still relatively cheap, with a carrot-and-stick approach. Give developers the chance to build higher and thus make more money, but mandate they cap the rents for a percentage of units at levels deemed affordable to area incomes. East New York is up first. A coalition of community groups wants several changes to the neighborhood plan. More money for schools and parks. Help for longtime homeowners needing repairs. Preservation of some of the industrial lots that provide local jobs. And most importantly, stiffer requirements on what constitutes, quote, affordable housing. So we called Pastor Mickey again and asked him how he and his congregation are feeling about the future. I think that mostly there's anxiety as to who are they going to be the people that build these things and how are they going to provide a door for the poor people to enter or some stupidity like that. How quick will this happen? How soon will this affect me and my family? Those are the questions that are being asked. It doesn't sound like you're terribly optimistic. How do we process what's gone on over the last year plus? Has a good thing happened? Community engagement, a new plan been written? Or has a terrible thing happened? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to have the, the kind of a straight-ahead emotional reaction because I'm on both sides. I feel good things did happen, and yet I feel fundamentally this city is headed in a very disastrous course when it comes to people being able to afford to live here. So... There's a deep uh, skepticism about the whole process. The big question remains, how many units will be built and retained that are truly affordable in a neighborhood where the median income for a family of three is around $34,000? Binky says the community's campaign will continue, focused particularly on getting the city to help nonprofit developers find parcels on which they can build. But the bottom line, and you can hear it in his voice, is he's just not trustful of the future or of his congregants' place in it. Publicly, you shouldn't walk around with a frowny face. You know? uh, it, it doesn't help anything. But inside, it just turns away. Uh, you feel it slipping, you feel it going, you feel it happening. He's not crazy. It is happening which is a problem for de Blasio's plan. Because remember, it makes an important assumption. The East New York real estate market won't take off too fast. So developers who want to move in there will be much more likely to lean on all the public subsidies that already encourage affordable housing construction. And that, combined with the new rules for building on rezoned lots, will drive up the overall number of affordable units in the neighborhood market. Okay, great. But if instead the market heats up quickly and developers start flipping properties that target high-income buyers and renters, well, then you'll start losing existing affordable units in the process. You'll be chasing your tail. Well, the Center for New York City Neighborhoods has been tracking data on where developers flip properties around the city. 
And executive director Christy Peel says there are troubling signs. And we saw that historically Bed-Stuy was a neighborhood where investors were really interested in flipping. But this year, the two neighborhoods that jumped to the top of the list were East New York and Jamaica, Queens. For now, the pressure point is really the neighborhood's sizable stock of quirky little one-to-four-family homes. The charming blocks of hodgepodge architecture that sits just above and just below the area that will be rezoned to allow for taller apartment buildings. Things are definitely moving quickly in the small homes market. This is a historically unregulated housing stock, but it's a critical part of the city's housing infrastructure because it provides a lot of affordable rental units. They're not regulated, but they're affordable to most working class families. East New York now sees more flips in terms of volume than anywhere else in the city. But the Cypress Hills section of East New York, this is the potential mother load for developers. In Cypress Hills, they're really marketing it as a place where you can put in less money but make a lot more on the outside. It's now the best return on investment in the city. The median return is 125% over what you put in not accounting for the money developers spend on remodeling. What it also is doing is it's creating comps, as they say in the real estate industry. So it's it's pushing where the typical sales prices are up higher and higher and higher. Every sale, you're making the market hotter, essentially. It's really a self-fulfilling prophecy. But it's not just those small homes. After the break, D.W. Gibson talks to tenants in a much larger development who have a new landlord, one of the city's most infamous. We've been hearing from listeners with so many different stories. Here's one caller from Crown Heights. When I was living in Crown Heights on Franklin Avenue, starting in early 2012, my landlord was so desperate to get higher rate tenants in that they changed my locks on me, saying that they smelled a gas leak. And when that didn't work to get me out, they stopped cashing my rent checks. They then filed an eviction notice. The day that I contested the eviction, they cashed all of the rent checks that they had been hoarding for the past three months. It's real out there. It's really terrible. I should note that um, although I think institutionalized racism plays a huge role in the way that things are panning out, as they always have when it comes to housing, I am a white woman in my 30s, and it just goes to show you that no one is immune. I'm Kai Wright, and this is There Goes the Neighborhood. Before the break, Christy Peel explained how important the stock of one-to-four family homes are for affordable housing in Brooklyn, and East New York in particular. Investors are already at work flipping those for high-income buyers. But big buildings are in play, too. Developers looking to increase capitalization of large apartment buildings filled with rent-stabilized units are already doing so. Pinnacle Management is one of them. The company has an established track record for removing tenants from rent-stabilized units in order to bring them up to market rate. D.W. Gibson went to check it out. Pinnacle's march through New York City's gentrifying neighborhoods began a decade ago. To get a better sense of what could happen in East New York, I talked to Kim Powell, who knows Pinnacle as a tenant in one of their 10 buildings in West Harlem along Riverside Drive. She says after they bought the building, they quickly went to work removing tenants in rent-stabilized units. We found out that they took one quarter of their tenants to court 
all on frivolous claims, a clear indication that their effort was to, again, drive as many rent-regulated tenants out of their apartments. Powell, a lifelong resident of West Harlem, is a lawyer, and she knew something was wrong when her landlord had acquired a $34 million blanket mortgage for the 10 buildings along Riverside Drive. She knew her building generated a modest income. At the time Pinnacle acquired it, it had a monthly rent roll of just over $28,000. So she knew the mortgage granted by Wells Fargo was predicated on displacement of rent-regulated tenants. So Powell organized the tenants in the building and brought a class-action lawsuit. The lawsuit itself was one of the first class-actions brought against investors. And the focus was to accuse them under the RICO Act, the Racketeering Influence Corruption Act, of calling together a collective entity for the specific purpose of engaging in illegal activity. And the tenants won, sort of. Pinnacle was ordered to create a $1.3 million fund for tenants filing claims for damages. The court also reminded Pinnacle that it is responsible for complying with the rent regulation laws. But the judge's order left no outside oversight in place. And so the company continued its march through New York's gentrifying neighborhoods, shifting from upper Manhattan to some of the fastest-changing areas in Brooklyn. In Crown Heights, which has seen some of the most intense gentrification in recent years, Pinnacle has converted at least 80 rent-stabilized units to market rate so far, and those are just the documented cases. When I called Pinnacle to speak to its principal, Joel Weiner, I was told he was not available and that he does not have an email address or a voicemail box. I asked if there was someone else who might be able to answer my questions about the company's business model, and when I did, the woman on the line, who would not give her name, hung up. Now Pinnacle has marched all the way to East New York with a $53 million acquisition. They bought 318 units in the sprawling apartment complex known as Meadowwood at Gateway on Flatlands Avenue. Most of the tenants I encountered in the housing complex already have a strong sense of what's to come. When I asked for early impressions of Pinnacle, I got a lot of sighs and eye rolls. And when I asked tenants if they're aware of Pinnacle's track record, the answers were certain. Yes, we are. Yes. That's Arlene Cummings, who I caught on her way home with her grandchildren. We know it's not a good record. We all went on the internet. We looked it up. Basically, they want the renters out. They're doing it all over. I looked up Pinnacle. And that's Maya Diaz, a woman in her 60s who's lived in her apartment for 30 years. You know, I, I used to share the apartment with my sister. She since died, and I took it over, and I went with my daughter. I'm not leaving this. I've been here too long. I raised my kids here. I'm a fighter. You know, so, and that's that for that, hopefully. While the de Blasio administration remains focused on the goal of building new affordable housing, so much of the affordable housing that already exists, namely rent-stabilized apartments, are being siphoned from the system, one building at a time or even one unit at a time. And this forces longtime residents to find new homes. No one knows this better than Dr. Ron Daly, who has been practicing medicine in Brooklyn for over 20 years. He runs a general practice with a close friend from medical school. When we started in 95, that's when HIV treatment first became FDA approved. And so we were one of the first private practices in Brooklyn that was offering HIV treatment. They wanted to buy an office for their growing practice, but got cold feet at the last minute and started renting a place on Atlantic Avenue. And I think our rent was a thousand bucks a month. It's a storefront owned by this old Egyptian guy. Eventually, they moved to a better space on Flatbush Avenue across the street from where the Barclays Center is now. 
And when Barclays Center was being built, we decided that we'd better get the heck out of there because we didn't want to be across the street from this gigantic facility. And so we moved to Fort Greene. And after two years on Green Street, Dr. Daly and his partner decided the only way they were going to survive rising costs in the medical field and rising rents throughout Brooklyn was to join a larger hospital. And so they did. The doctor had only been in his new office for two weeks when I talked to him. Everything smelled new, all plastic and paint. He still has mixed feelings about letting a massive hospital system swallow up his independent practice. Our practice has gentrified. We were open seven days a week. We did all this great stuff for folks. Now, we see fewer patients, and I'm sure we cost the system more. Each person that comes in here, two years ago, they saw me for 100 bucks. Now they're seeing me for 180 for exactly the same service. It's one of my regrets about what we had to do. But the reality is, is we couldn't have continued. We would have died as an operation. When Dr. Daly was negotiating with the hospital system, he was able to grandfather in all of his patients with GHI plans. He says these plans provide some of the weakest coverage, but they're often the plans of city workers, police officers, and school teachers. And he wanted to continue to see these Brooklynites. And so he can, but he's cut off from accepting any more. He feels like the range of people he sees every day has changed in recent years. Now I'm seeing IT guys who are coming in because they've been taking Adderall ever since they were in college, and they need a doctor to give them their speed so that they can continue to work efficiently. I just see that all the time now. Everybody's either in IT, they're in the food industry, they're in Wall Street, or they're in some form of entertainment industry or visual media. Dr. Daly's older patients are not only getting squeezed out of the neighborhood or Brooklyn, they're leaving the city altogether. And I've seen many, many people as they age who have cashed out and moved down south. Even for homeowners who are able to, as Daly puts it, cash out, the decision to leave is not always a first choice. A lot of people do not want to go. The amenities that the city has to offer are as good as they've ever been. He echoes what we've heard from so many longtime residents. New amenities and improvements to the neighborhood are welcomed with open arms. But this problem remains. The moment these things are put in place is often the moment that longtime residents who lived there for so long without the improvements and amenities are either incentivized to leave or pushed out altogether. There is a, a woman I just saw on Wednesday, and she told me, I'm leaving and this is the last time you'll see me because I'm moving down south with my husband because it's just too hard to live here. And she works for the city as an advocate for folks that are in rental situations where the landlords are trying to kick them out and they're trying to not be kicked out. I asked the doctor to put me in touch with this woman and went to visit her in the bed apartment she's leaving. Her name is Dion Watley-Adger, and she was born in Brooklyn. As far as me leaving New York, it's because you can't find anything affordable here in terms of house and ownership. It's almost like your arm or your leg. So I have decided to move out of state where I I have my own house, backyard, and all the amenities, and it's not even as high as paying rent here in New York. She's moving to Snellville, about 30 miles east of Atlanta. She leaves in August, maybe sooner. She's still deciding. Her husband's already there, and Dion has extended family in Georgia, aunts and uncles. But she will be leaving behind three important people, two grown daughters and a nine-month-old granddaughter. She's hopeful they, too, will be moving to Georgia someday soon. For now, they're hanging on to their lives in Brooklyn. One's a school teacher, and the other works in a daycare. 
So it's like I've always been in New York. So to be moving to Georgia, um, mm-hmm, um, I really have a lot of anxiety about moving. It's going to be a change, but it's a change well needed. I'm tired of doing this. I want to do something different. One of the final straws for Dion came when her landlord recently started eviction proceedings with several of her neighbors in rent-stabilized apartments. I don't know if you know, there's two types of evictions. One is a holdover, one is a non-payment. So what they're doing now is doing holdovers. Holdover is that the landlord does not want any money, that they just want the apartment back. No reason given after you done lived here, raised your family 30 years plus, you're just being forced out. So far, they haven't come after Dion, but she feels the heat. She talks to all her neighbors. 20 years of work in the city's eviction unit makes her popular in the building. As she does with her clients, Dion tells her neighbors about their rights and legal options. Between home and work, she's awash in wrenching stories. Unfortunately, just the other day, I was unable to save a family of five because no one in the household had an income. The father was working and he got injured. He was like the breadwinner, of course. Most of the clients that Dion works with don't have lawyers. She's out in the field every day reaching out to them before they're swallowed up in a complex system. Dion doesn't have enough time to get to every person. Some of them are not even getting eviction proceedings. The marshals are just showing up. Sometimes the stories are so sad and, you know, heartbreaking. And I'm at that age in my life where there's one happiness and a little bit of joy. There are a lot of unknowns about the life that awaits Dion in Georgia. One thing's for certain. At 46, she's ready for a new career. long as it's a job that I'm comfortable and I'm happy going to, I'm great. I'll be all right. And so we're back to that question. Is there still a place for me here? I moved to Brooklyn nearly 15 years ago, and I've felt at home here like no place else I've ever been. But as my partner and I have watched our community change around us, all the stuff we've talked about on this podcast, we've asked is this still our home? We decided, yes, it is. But the only way we can make it work long-term is to buy our own place, to grab a piece of Brooklyn and just hold on. So we've searched. And look, we're lucky. We don't have that crucial wealth we heard about in Episode 7, but our household income puts us among the most privileged people in this city. And yet, staying in Bed-Stuy is out of the question financially. Instead, the house we found, and it's a nice one, would keep us in Brooklyn by four blocks. It's in Cypress Hills. Pastor Binky and Annette and Rick and Joshua and Harold Green, they'll all be my neighbors, assuming my arrival doesn't gentrify them out. The house is one of those Christy Peel talked about at the top of this episode, one that's, quote, creating comps, remodeled in price to lure people like me and heat up the market. She offered me some tangible advice on dealing with this fact. What is my responsibility if I'm shopping in a neighborhood that this is happening in East New York? What does an individual actual homebuyer do? Well, I think uh, what you want to think about is, you know, what the stability of your neighborhood is going to look like over time. If you're buying a home that does have a rental unit, you could think about what it means to be able to offer a rental unit at below market. I can resist the upward price pressure that will make it hard for me to rent out to someone from the neighborhood. And, you know, I noticed when we went to open houses, the realtors gave us printouts promising potential rental income with suggested rents more than twice what would be affordable for the median household in Cypress Hills. To say, you know, I really don't think that that's, that's feasible uh, starts to push back on some of the assumptions that the market has. But for the most part, I think you have to think about what matters to you as you know, a homeowner and what you want the neighborhood to look like. 
She's pushing toward a more fundamental set of questions that my partner and I are now asking. Early on in reporting this podcast, the team sat down with Rob Robinson. He's got a remarkable story. Back in March of 2001, he was a rising star at a large corporation. He got offered a promotion that required him to relocate from New York to Miami. They moved me down there, gave me relocation funds, put me in a a hotel for two months till I found an apartment, gave me a vehicle to drive. So, you know, you're sort of on cloud nine, right? So I, I moved down. Settled down, started working, and, you know, in July I was called in and told there's no more money in the company for your position. We have to let you go. And, you know, being a confident individual, I said, okay, I got this position. I'll find another. The city was plunging into a recession, the same one that much of America is still climbing out of today. So I found myself a year later running out of unemployment and severance money. Then I tapped into a bank account, paid off a lease. Two years late, I found myself on the streets of Miami. Homeless. He lived on the streets of Miami for two years until some outreach workers found him and helped him get back to New York. He'd kept his homelessness a secret from his family in Long Island, but they knew he was out of work. So as he rode the bus up, he figured he'd go first to his sister's house and plot his next step from there. But when I got to Port Authority, I looked in the mirror and I said, okay, I, you know, she can't see me like this. And I asked somebody in Port Authority where I could clean up, take a shower. And they said, there's a shelter across the street. Well, I went in that night and came out 10 months later. Wow. I went in there, started organizing for better conditions in the shelter. Rob is now one of the city's most engaged and outspoken advocates for the homeless and for affordable housing. We asked him our question about big, unthinkable policy ideas to solve the city's gentrification problem. But he wanted to talk about something more basic. What is a home? That's the true definition that they're lacking, what a real home is. It's a sense of community. It's a sense of family. It's a whole bunch of stuff that goes around it, around that structure. I think that's a fundamental understanding that's lacking in this city. Rob talks about exchange value versus use value, what a house can earn you versus what a home can mean for your life. He talks about squatter movements and shack settlements in places like South Africa and Brazil, where people built homes and communities, if not housing markets. And that's all fine and good. But honestly, listening to him, it all felt removed from the real choices I'm facing as a home buyer in Brooklyn. But I have to say, we are a long way from the commons. I don't want to build a shack over my head. I want to build a lovely brownstone on Jefferson Avenue okay. with, uh, with all new appliances and three stories and a nice backyard. That's what I would love to have. And it'd be worth enough money that I can take a little bit out of it and go start a wine bar someday. So how does that person connect to this revolution of the commons? To be so honest, I'm not sure you can because it, it, <laughs> it speaks to me. Because it makes me part of the problem. He says I'm just simply focused on the wrong stuff. I think our values have to change, right, as a society. We have to look in the mirror and say, I'm not standing up on a mantelpiece and preaching to anybody. But I can tell you, after laying on the streets of Miami for two years, I've been transformed. We all have to someday hit our head against the wall and sort of wake up. I don't know where that moment is for everybody else. Mine was from laying on those streets in Miami, man. I learned a whole lot of stuff, right? And it changed me. And it changed me to not value material things. I don't anymore. I've moved away from that. I really don't care. Well, I can't have that Jefferson Avenue brownstone anyway. Because even with all my privilege, it's out of my reach financially. So we're moving to Cypress Hills. And I'm excited about it. The neighborhood's going to change. That's the plan, in fact. The only question is, how will it change? And how will I be part of the solution there? 
So I turned back to Pastor Binky for more advice. Join the community. Listen to the beat of this community. Listen to the lives of the people who have lived here for all these years and who have enjoyed it. And then become part of the fabric of the community and planning for the future with us. Not on your own, not apart from us, not in your own little direction, but join the battle, you know. Join the battle to keep this a family-friendly, mixed economic community that really enjoys one another block by block. Understand that I'm not just obtaining real estate. I'm joining a community, one that's in a tough spot and could use my help. I'm ready for that. Because here's the hopeful thing I've learned in this podcast. It's not just poor New Yorkers who are feeling the squeeze. Renters and middle-class home buyers, policymakers and artists, black and white, even some developers. We are all frustrated by how hard it's becoming to build a life and pursue opportunity here. There's power in that somewhere. So, yes, Brooklyn is still my home. And I'm willing to fight for it. Next week, a bonus episode. We were going to stop at eight, but we've been so overwhelmed by the response from people who are wrestling with similar questions. Plus, there are so, so many aspects of gentrification we couldn't cover. So we'll hear from all of you. And if you haven't chimed in yet, call and tell us at 646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WNYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded, mixed, and I have to add a producer and tech wizard credit here for Casey Means, who has carried us through this journey with such grace and skill. Our researcher is Sean Carlson. Our associate producer is Amy Eason. Thanks to Andy Lancet for providing us with that recording of Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Janet Babin and Jessica Gould contributed recordings to this episode. They are reporters in the WNYC newsroom, and they cover these issues day in and day out. Terrence Blanchard composed our theme music, and we are grateful. It's so beautiful. Thanks to our digital team, Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Kevin France, Frank Reynolds, and Annie Shields. D.W. Gibson, Jim O'Grady, Kai Wright, and Rebecca Carroll contributed to the reporting and producing of this episode. It's a privilege to work with this team. I'm Karen Frillman, the editor and executive producer of There Goes the Neighborhood. Thank you so much for listening. Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.